This is Ron Friends, Comics Illustrator, and this is a bumper for the Amazing Spider Talk. Too many who know the angles, uncover and untangle all the questions and the webs left out to tangle. I'll be in 1962, last Wednesday's afternoon. They'll bend your ears with reckless self-abandoned. The Amazing Spider Talk. The Amazing Spider Talk. Come swing the air, sit back and prepare for the Amazing Spider Hello, I'm Dapper Dan Gavostin, and I'm the founder and editor of SuperiorSpiderTalk.com. And I'm mischievous Mark Giannacchio, founder of the Chasing Amazing blog and author of 100 Things Spider-Man Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. Well, thanks everyone for joining us for the ninth episode of the all-new Amazing Spider-Talk. We hope you enjoy this podcast and that it provides an intelligent conversation between two fans and collectors as we look at the Spider-Man comic universe in a bit of a bigger picture. Yes, Dan, all throughout this first season of the all-new Amazing Spider-Talk, you and I have been taking a journey down memory lane to the Stan Lee and Steve Ditko creative run on Amazing Spider-Man. The most recent episode, you and I talked about Spider-Man's role as a street-level hero. Uh, today, we're going to go a little more creator-centric, and we're going to be talking about the co-creator, not who we consider to be the co-creator, but the co-creator of Spider-Man, none other than the great artist, Steve Ditko. Who do we have joining us today on the show, Mark? Well, we actually have two guests. Double your fun, Dan. Our first guest is uh, Nick Caputo, who is a, a blogger. Uh, his site is Marvel Mysteries and Comics Minutia. Uh, but more for the purposes of this episode, he, he is a Steve Ditko expert uh, who has done a lot of research and writing about Ditko over the years uh, and lots of great insights. And then our second guest, Dan, certainly no stranger to the show, a longtime friend of the podcast, the great legendary artist Ron Friends who is going to talk about uh, Ditko's influences on him and to the industry at large from the artistic side. Yeah, and uh, like always for this episode, we're going to be talking about the entire Steve Ditko and Stan Lee run on the book. And when Ron Friends comes on, we do talk about some of Ron's work. So if you want to catch up on Ron's work, you can start off with Amazing Spider-Man 252, where he and Tom DeFalco introduced the black suit into the pages of Amazing Spider-Man and and that you'll immediately recognize the similarities to Steve Ditko. And uh, to that point, if you want to read along and read the, all of these runs, you can find it just about anywhere, print, digital, or as part of Marvel's Unlimited Service. So, Mark, uh, let's get right to it. This is a jam-packed episode. So, everybody, uh, strap yourselves in for Ditko Shrugged. And now the moment you've been waiting for, an interview with Steve Dicko. 
Well, Dan, we are joined here for our Dicko episode to talk with uh, Nick Caputo, who uh, is uh, a blogger and a writer. Uh, he is the uh, the man behind the blog Marvel Mysteries and Comics Minutia, but he's uh, written for a ton of other sites, knows a lot about Dicko, the person, and, and in terms of how that's kind of influenced his comics work. Uh, he's been following this for some years. Uh, Nick, why don't you say hi and introduce yourself <laughs> well hello folks uh, uh glad to be here it's uh you know an honor i've listened to your uh, previous post and i could see you guys are knowledgeable about uh the work of uh ditko and spider-man in particular and then the comics so that you know it's really nice to uh to be allowed to uh, speak a little bit about his work Excellent. Well, well, Dan, you and I, a few episodes ago, we had Bob Batchelor on to talk about uh, Stan Lee in a little more detail. And obviously, when it comes to uh, the Silver Age of Spider-Man, you, there, there is no Spider-Man. Uh, there's Lee and then there's Steve Ditko. And, um, you know, in, in, in many ways, Steve Ditko's contributions to the Spider-Man mythos might be even more significant than Stan's, yet... You know, Dan, as you and I have talked about in the past, Stan seems to get more of the credit for various reasons. And, and you know, we could talk a little bit about why that's the case. But, you know, part of the reason why we wanted to have Nick on, of course, was, you know, not that that Steve is Steve Ditko is this huge mystery. I mean, we know, obviously, that he was very influential in, in the comic book world. We know that he is the co-creator of uh, Spider-Man uh, and Doctor Strange and tons of other uh, characters uh, for a, a bunch of different comic book imprints. But, you know, because of, I guess you would say, Steve's nature, he he doesn't seem to be as self-promotional as, as Stanley. I mean, he, he has he's notoriously he doesn't give interviews. Uh, he doesn't, you know, talk publicly about his work. He he does write a bunch of uh, essays in the comics. I think is the name of the uh, publication. Is that right? Yeah, it's Robin Snyder's comics. Yes, uh, from what I've read over the years and what I've seen, he does not consider himself a celebrity of any kind. He is more an intense person that just wants to do his his work, do his comic books. He doesn't see himself in any manner of, as a celebrity. And I think that's what differentiates himself from from a lot of others is that he's never looked at it that way. And he's his really intense interest in work is in what he's doing, you know, sitting there at the drawing board and doing that work is the most important thing to him. You know, one of the things that I think is really interesting to note about Steve Dicko uh, in terms of Spider-Man and his comic book work and is, you know, obviously, you know, we often hear a lot about the kind of debate over creator rights specifically when it is regarding the artists and their rights to a creation and we get that a lot with jack kirby because it seems like kirby really got zero credit (laughs) um and you know when it came to a lot of his co-creations with stan lee um ditko obviously you know you can make the case that he deserves significantly more credit than he's gotten but he does seem to have a leg up on kirby in the fact that you know about you know he started co he started basically plotting the entire issue of Amazing Spider-Man around issue ten and around issue number twenty five he actually got the written credit on you know in the credits page on Amazing Spider-Man that he was the 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 I think he, was he written as co-plotter or plotter I mean like it is he got credit where Kirby never plotter. did <laughs> it was plotter from twenty five on 
I and think he wanted, he wanted that, and uh, he received that. I think he was doing a lot of the plotting earlier on. Not all of it. I think uh, what could pinpoint uh, where it probably ended completely with uh, Stan plotting was probably with the end of guest stars, because Ditko did not like using guest stars, did not like bringing on the characters into his Spider-Man world, thought it interfered with uh, with creating those characters and developing the plotting of of the subplots and everything else. So the last time you saw a character appearing uh, that Stan plotted was uh, probably Amazing Spider-Man, was it 23, with the Human Torch and the the Beetle, both outside characters. So definitely, and Ditko's talked about that story. So you know that Stan was still plotting it, at least up to there, which doesn't mean that Ditko wasn't plotting earlier stories, but, you know, there was an input with Stan, at least up to that point. Uh, By 25, or a little bit before 25, is from Ditko's uh, statements, is when he was solely plotting everything. Of course, there were other things that happened. The uh, college storyline, obviously, was something that was talked about earlier, and Ditko finally mentioned that recently, where he wasn't talking to Stan, Stan wasn't talking to him anymore, and he went to Flo and said, does Stan want me to continue the, uh, to, uh, does he want, still want Peter to go to college? And uh, she said, yeah. And he, obviously, they had talked about that, before and uh stan actually did a storyline the year before in patsy walker what did she do graduate it was a big storyline it was a cover story uh she went to college she graduated this was a year before peter parker ever did it and other in other comics you saw johnny storm go to college uh so you know there was that points to stan's involvement or idea that go went along with it so supposedly you may have thought about that for a while wasn't sure if he wanted to do it went along with it and uh, you know that storyline was there but this was something that they discussed probably quite a while earlier did go from what i've seen and what i've read he's always plotted things out way in advance thought things out very seriously how it was going to go same thing with the green goblin supposedly thought that up from day one that it would be a, a character that became norman osborne so that points to uh you know a lot of thought and a lot of involvement from, from day one. Well, that's really interesting that you say that. Um, I'm curious then, you know, if he's planning so far in advance, but this college thing was kind of a Stan Lee, you know, uh, not creation, but I guess suggestion, if you will. Um, you know, how much can we uh, attribute the creator uh, aspect to um, Dicko in regards to, like, the, the supporting characters that were introduced alongside the college? Like, is... Are Harry Osborn and Gwen Stacy and all of these characters solely Ditko creations? I think so, yeah. I think that was all Ditko's idea to move on, to come up with new new characters. Uh, Harry, of course, eventually, and he mentioned this in one of his essays, was Norman Osborn's son. He didn't look like a really nice kid the way he drew him, obviously. So he would have probably turned out to be a creep, too, if he drew him. He had the same hairstyle. He mentioned him. He never mentioned the names because he didn't come up with the names. But he said the same distinct hairstyle. That was Harry. That was Norman. Uh, Gwen Stacy, I'm pretty sure, you know, was something he had came up, come up with on his own. Uh, all those characters. Yeah, I think he would have developed them and probably in different ways if, uh, if he continued on Spider-Man. I always suspect that Gwen Stacy would have been a much different character. Uh, she probably would have learned... Peter Parker's identity, Spider-Man's identity, uh, like he did with the Blue Beetle. That's just a guess. But I think that she would have been somebody that would have been 
uh, equal to him on many levels, and he would have confided in her. Um, you know, one of the things that I, the senses I've always gotten from, you know, some of the essays that I've read by Dicko was that he he was not afraid to push back um, against Stanley. I mean, you know, there was the. You know, I, I think back to when he was talking about Amazing Spider-Man number two, and I guess uh, Stan's initial pitch for the Vulture was he kind of wanted to be this like heavy set character, right, and, right. and I think Dicko made the joke that it would look <laughs> like a flying turkey or something. Right. You know? And um, yeah, he said he said he liked doing heavy set characters, and uh, you know he didn't think it worked for that type of character, Sydney Greenstreet type. You know, yeah. which became the Kingpin later on. You know, which it, worked for that character certainly, but and. Doctor Octopus wasn't exactly, you know, a skinny guy. He was he was a little bit more like a, you know, a more heavy set character, but it worked for him. You know, so he really thought this out and when he thought something didn't work, yeah, I think he would certainly talk with Stan, discuss issues with him, and they come to an agreement of some kind. And I think Stan gave him a lot of uh uh you know uh, ability to uh to do what he wanted as long as he, he was happy with it. Uh you know, I think that's what their relationship was early on. You know, I think that ended, unfortunately, and I think one of the reasons Ditko was unhappy and he didn't stay uh, much longer when they stopped talking to each other was that there was not that communication between the two. He wanted that, and uh, he didn't, when he didn't have that anymore, he just felt like, you know, he was doing it all himself. He didn't know when he, as a freelance if he was going to continue in a job. You know, there was that reality. And uh, as he said, when he talked about leaving Spider-Man a couple of years ago in his essay, you know, they Saul Brodsky calls him and tells him, uh, you know, we're doing a Spider-Man annual number three, uh, you know, plot that. And he just sat there and go, you know, thought to himself, this is, you know, that's what I'm going to do. You know, uh, I think it's time to go. How, how, how do I know if I'm going to be here much longer? You know, uh, there's no input. So I think as a freelancer, you also have to look at it in a realis- realistic way. You know, uh, if you're not talking to uh, one of the main people there, how do you know if you're going to keep getting work? They say goodbye tomorrow. So he, when he left there, he certainly got lots of accounts. He was working for Charlton, which he always worked for Charlton, even when he was working at Marvel. Uh, Dell, Warren, Tower, you know, so he certainly, you know, kept himself open. And he always had a job at Charlton. So whatever, as long as they were there, he worked for them. And also when he was doing Doctor Strange around the same time for Marvel, I mean, that was – Stan had even less input on that, right? I mean, that was really mm-hmm. all Steve from start to finish for the most part, right? Well, the early issues uh, – Stan plotted a lot of the early issues. Uh, he was involved with it. But again, Steve was unhappy for a lot of reasons, uh, mainly because he brought other anchors in. I think he wanted Steve probably to do more uh, uh, work – to help him out with stuff as an anchor, you know, last minute jobs, Steve helped out a lot of times when there was deadlines and, you know, we figured he'd be more useful that way. And Ditko's idea was like, I don't need, you know, other people inking this stuff. I could do it myself. You know, he didn't want George Rousseau or others to uh, be there. He wanted to do the complete job. Uh, Stan was plotting. He also gave it to, uh, to other people sometimes such as Don Rico. Uh, and according to Ditko, he, came to him one time, and, and Stan was thinking of uh, canceling this trip. And, uh, you know, Steve said, look, let me do it myself. I got ideas for this. Let me plot it. Let me draw it. And that basically, I think, starts the whole Dormammu saga, uh, what I would call in, in terms of, you know, a graphic novel in a way. 
of that period and some of his finest work on Doctor Strange. But, you know, basically he did push for that to to do it on his own. But earlier on, Stan was, was, you know, plotting some of those stories. So since Steve doesn't really do interviews, you know, it allowed Stan Lee to kind of, well, not even just allowed him. Stan Lee was a guy in the spotlight and really liked to kind of be the press man. And it's kind of allowed Stan to shape history in a way, right? Because he's the one getting the stories out there. Um, I'm curious um, about, you know, the kind of back and forth between the creation of the Spider-Man character. Like, who was Stan Lee before he was brought onto this project? How did he get involved? And then what input do you see uh, Dicko is having uh, in regards to the creation of the character? Well, I, you know, uh, Ditko's uh, contribution, I think, was, was pretty huge. There was a Spider-Man concept. There was something that came before, obviously, with uh, with Jack Kirby uh, that we've never seen, the, the published artwork of. Those who have seen it said it looked more like a, uh, you know, a, a, a Captain America type. There was a lot of differences. I think Steve, uh, when he saw the pencil pages he was supposed to ink, realized that it looked, very, since he knew comics again, this points to him being knowledgeable. He saw uh, Simon and Kirby's fly, and uh, he thought it looked familiar and similar to that. I think, again, this is just conjecture, but I suspect that uh, Stan, or uh, I don't know if it got to the publisher, Martin Goodman, uh, who wouldn't have been pleased, but uh, the uh, publishers of Archie Comics uh, were very litigious, and they would sue at the drop of a hat. I don't think they wanted to have anything to do with anything that looked like the fly. Uh, they don't want to get sued. That's why they said, drop everything, Steve. I'll plot it with you. Uh, the uh, the first story obviously had a lot. I mean, a lot of uh, Stan's ideas and storyline plotting was there. Uh, a lot of it references the earlier Rawhide Kid had the same origin. His uncle is killed. His uncle Ben is killed. And uh, there are certainly elements of... of, of uh, of Stan's plot there. Uh, but as you move on, and uh, we moved on, you know, certainly the first issue, uh, Ditko references using John Jameson and an astronaut going into space uh, was a Stan plot. Uh, the Tinkerer, space aliens, was a Stan plot. Other ideas were, were Stan plots there, but Steve was definitely, you know, going in a certain direction and really felt, you know, a uh, Again, put a lot of work into it, took it seriously, and added the visual element, which is so important also. I mean, basically, he created that whole look, uh, the costume, the webbing, the face, uh, a, a teenage character that looks like a teenager. There were so many elements there that attract you. I was a kid. It attracted me immediately. You know, there was something about it that really, really drew you in. The vulnerability of that character. If you look at one of the covers I'm going to put up soon on my uh, on my blog, Amazing Spider-Man 15 with Craven the Hunter. I remember that as a kid. Here it is. This character is, is stuck. He's trapped. And this character, Craven's advancing on him. You know, and here it is. This, you know, it wasn't a guy with its, you know, he's, it's, he's in danger. You know, uh, uh, that was a big point, too. You know, he didn't look like this huge, imposing, powerful character that could beat anybody. You know, he might get hurt. And didn't Dicko really push for the idea of having... Spider-Man in a mask because he wanted that to kind of, again, like 
it, it was off-putting, it was unnerving, but it also kind of lent the idea that anybody could be under that mask, which I think has oh, yeah. been an important part of who Spider-Man is and even like you know other versions of Spider-Man we've gotten over the years. It's that idea that it really can be anybody. It doesn't have to just be you know, someone that looks like Peter Parker. I mean, that's that's part of the mystery of the character. According to Ditko, yeah, he really wanted to uh, to have that look, uh, to have the face covered because it's covering, again, a young face, youthful face. Uh, you could be anybody under the mask. You don't know who it is. Gives you a sense of uh, mystery. Uh, and you didn't have too many characters like that. There were a few here and there. The Ghost Rider, of course, the Western Ghost Rider was, was one. There were, there were others. And I'm sure he you know, may have been remembered some of those, inspired by some of those. But, yeah, that was a big part of it, that the face was, was covered. And you could, you know, as a fan, a reader, you, you could think of yourself as that person underneath that mask. So, I'm curious about Stan Lee and Steve Ditko's early relationships, uh, early relationship working on this book. I mean, is it that the relationship deteriorated over time? Was there ever anything, like, really like clicking between the two of them where they were like a true partnership um, or did it already, did it always kind of start off in not great place uh, for Steve Dicko in terms of kind of feeling that there was an equal share uh, regarding the character? Mm, that's a good question. Uh, you know, I can't put words into anybody's mouth. I don't know. He's never really addressed that issue. Uh, you have to remember though, that they went back to a working relationship for, you know, 1956, when he first started doing mystery stories for Stan. One of the first stories he did was a Western signed by Stan. So they worked together for a while. Stan obviously admired his work. Uh, so there was really kind of almost a 10-year relationship, which is a long time, uh, at Marvel, Atlas and Marvel. Uh, I think there was certainly more uh, when they're working on the fantasy stories, which was less involved. Uh, Stan was still giving him a... a, a, a you know, a uh, synopsis, plot synopsis. He said he always worked from a plot synopsis. Uh, I think there was probably more interaction early on. That's my guess. Uh, and there might have been more give and take uh, early on, you know. But certainly, you know, there was a lot. Uh, they, they probably didn't see eye to eye on certain things. Uh, Dick always brought up a lot of those in the essays you've read. You know, the fact that he wanted to uh, stand... Seemed, took a lot of uh, interest in what fans had to say from early on. He bought the fanzines. He read the fanzines. He took seriously. Ditko didn't take as much seriously as much, even though he he uh, drew for the fans. He uh, was very generous to fans and drew a lot of artwork for them. But he didn't take everything they said seriously. And Stan tended to, you know, do that. Uh, Aunt May, make her look prettier. You know, make her look younger. He was like, no. <laughs> She's Aunt, he took it seriously. This is Aunt May. This is an older woman. Draw her that way. Uh, once Ramita came in, you saw her. She got 10 years younger, 15 years younger. Uh, Jameson, uh, he said you know, he's not likable enough. You know, when he's saying he's not supposed to be likable. You know, he's the guy that you're supposed to dislike. And he mentioned a radio series called The Great, Gilda, uh, the Great Gildersleeve, uh, Fibber McGee and Molly, where this character played a very... Uh, you know, a, uh, not a, a pleasant guy, you know, and he was always a grumpy character. Everybody loved to hate him, you know, and he thought of him when he was doing Jameson. So it was just, there was these disagreements here and there where to Ditko it didn't make sense, you know. And Stan was like, you got to please the fans, you know. And I think there was that disruption probably grew uh, as the years went on. And 
you know, according to Ditko, of course, he said, Stan, stop talking to him. I don't know what the reasoning was for that. I suspect part of it might be because Ditko was so intense in his work. Uh, he liked going over the page by page, panel by panel. That's how we work when you come in, get the pencils, show Stan the artwork when they were speaking to each other. And they go over every little thing. If you want to change they discuss it. You know, that took a lot of time. Stan was doing every book, was involved in editing every title, every story. Maybe he just didn't feel he had the time. He could handle that. You know, he could have the time to do all that and spend an hour, two hours with Steve. I don't know. But I think something, you know, something went wrong there. And uh, the ability to communicate with each other and not communicate with each other was probably the, the nail in the coffin. Now, we're obviously talking about a lot of different relationship dynamics here and i and i think it, you know this is a, probably a, as good as a time as any to kind of segue into steve dicko's personal philosophy and kind of how that both affected his relationship with stan and marvel and um and obviously his his output on on spider-man and other comics as as well um you know dicko is you know he is a follower to, to some degree. I know it's not, you know, a hundred percent true, right. true yeah, not totally. to, to, uh, objectivism, which, um, you know, is kind of based on the, the writings and, and the philosophy of, of, um, and I always say her first name wrong. Is it Ayn Rand? Is it Ayn Rand? Yeah. I, 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 I've been corrected. Uh, Ayn Rand, you know, writer of, of, of Atlas Shrugged and the Fountainhead and, you know, my, my very basic uh, understanding of objectivism is, you know, it, it, the kind of at the, the, the core of it is this, this, the value of the of the individual and, right. and, 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 the, and the individual rights uh, versus, you know, the rights of the group or, or society. So, you know, when you're talking about like, you know, wanting what's best for the book versus giving into the fans or, you know, pushing back against. Uh, Stan when he wants the vulture to look like a flying turkey or anything like that. I mean, it does seem like it's coming from a place of that, right? I mean, is that a, is that too much of a leap of faith to be making here? <laughs> no, I, no, I think a lot of that comes from there. I mean, the thing is, it's uh, I don't think Ditko could appreciate people being uh, arbitrary, you know, just making arbitrary decisions. And this will, you know, let's throw in this guest star. And let's uh, have this villain here from Submariner. And to him, it didn't make sense, you know, and I think it's just his process of thinking, besides the fact of, of his interest in objectivism and everything, his process of thinking a story through. I've seen that in his own stories that he's done. He thinks everything through. He plots things out. Uh, I think he, you know, if something doesn't make sense to him, it really, really bothers him, like, why are you doing this? You know, why would you want to do something like this? And why are you doing it for a... Uh, you know, a fan that will change them on next week, you know, and you'll upset somebody else. You're not going to please everybody. So he just thought it was best for the, uh, what was best for the characters, uh, how we put them together, how they were created, how were they crafted. Uh, and, you know, Stan, you know, again, great wordsmith. He put things together well, but he wanted to, you know, put out a story, uh, come up with something exciting and fun for the kids he knew they liked guest stars. He knew they liked all these other things. But to Ditko, it just you know didn't make a lot of sense. And I think he he followed that through most of the, as much as he could at that point. You uh, talk about his like intentionality um, as a creator, and of course, anybody that's creating something really wants to make it into something and and give it their best. 
Um, but was there anything kind of intentionally personal for Steve Ditko in Spider-Man that he felt like he needed to really go to bat for it and for his ideas? Like, was there just something about that particular character that meant a lot to Ditko uh, other than the popularity of it? Uh I don't know. I think, it, again, with everything he's done, he probably takes it very seriously and invests a lot in, in what he's doing. Uh, I don't know how much the character of Peter Parker is involved with him personally. Uh, obviously, everybody takes things from their life's experiences as they've grown up as kids, what they've done, uh, you know, what, what, how they've lived, uh, what they've uh, dealt with over their lives. I think a, a lot of it, even subconsciously, is brought in. And I think that was that added to the intensity of the character, uh, the realism of the character. I mean, you know, that was probably I grew up in that time period. I was I always make jokes that I was on the cusp of uh, Ditko's work because uh, the first Spider-Man I remember is Amazing Spider-Man number thirty-nine with John Romita's beautiful cover and the beautiful colors jumping out at the newsstand. I love the coloring, the blues and the purples. And uh, I think Stan Goldberg colored that. I told him once is that the cover just jumped out of the newsstands. But at the same time, I was reading Marvel tales. Uh, my brother, my older brother, John had the uh, earlier comics starting with like amazing Spider-Man number three and did go just, you know, drew me in completely, even though I love Romita stuff. Uh, there was something about it, the way he drew characters, the, uh, the uh, figures, uh, the way he drew people and clothing, it looked like a real person, you know. Uh, he was able to do that very, very well. And the emotions that came through on the character of Peter Parker was, uh, and, and the other characters there, uh, you know, had a feeling of uh, truth to it, you know. And you don't get that too much in, in too many comic books, but at that, especially at that period, you know. And I think that was just the way he dealt with things, you know. Uh, Doctor Strange is a very different character, but... He follows a lot of the tenets of Ditko. He was a loner. He worked individually on his own, saving the world without anyone knowing what he was doing. Uh, and he lived in his own, you know, intense little world, you know. Uh, so I think, you know, that was just as intense in its own way, even though, you know, it didn't have the uh, core of characters that uh, Spider-Man Peter Parker had and Spider-Man had with the characters, probably one of the biggest uh, cast in that period. I mean... Any other book you compare it to, it's who had all these teenage characters, uh, the Bugle, Betty, Aunt May, uh, not even in Fantastic Four. You had a cast of characters that would pop up, but no, nothing that huge. So, you know, I think he really, once he was doing it, yeah, at that moment, he probably was really, really involved in doing the best he could with that and really putting a lot into it. Now, Nick, you know, one thing that Dan and I have talked about a lot over the course of this season it's kind of interesting when you go back and look at Peter Parker through the Dicko Lee era is, I mean, he's a, he's as a character is he's filled with contradictions, <laughs> you know, like, you know, on one end, you know, the, the, the core mantra with great power comes great responsibility kind of indicates this, this obligation to, to do what's right. Even, you know, if it comes at great sacrifice or, you know, great, you know, even if it, if it seems inconvenient, you know, he'd rather be doing something else. Yet at the same token, you know, there are there's certainly a lot of moments, especially when he's more Peter rather than Spider-Man, where, you know, there's kind of this this hubris to the character of, you know. I'm I not not a superiority, but how would you describe it, Dan? It's a, there's a, there's an edge to the character that I think probably comes from 
Dicko's beliefs, right? Does that sound reasonable? Yeah, that, that sounds about right. I mean, he, yeah, he kind of, I mean, we've talked about how there seemed to be a clear path for Peter to become a villain, which is obviously tied up in his origin story, the, the kind of selfishness uh, that he expresses in the very kind of like insular world that he's creating for himself. Um, that, you know, that allows him to kind of create his own morals, uh, that kind of clashes with reality where, uh, the world doesn't really care about, about what, what you think, you know, or, or, or what you deem as good. Um, yeah. And, uh, I don't know if, I don't want to jump on your question mark, but like, to me, the interesting thing about it is it seems like a very non-objectivist point of view but then some of Dicko's, what I imagine are Dicko's beliefs, seem to creep in at the edges of that every now and again. Yeah, I think a lot of that aspect of it probably came from Stan. Uh, I think the uh, aspect uh, that Dicko put through it, I don't think he ever, first, first of all, it was a kid growing up, teenager growing up, and I thought that was a very, you know, big thing because he has, you know, most of the... Uh, Time, I think it's been said that he's, you know, if you're a kid, you're still learning, you know. Uh, when you're an adult, you should be acting like an adult, be responsible, know what you're doing. As a kid, you know, he could make mistakes. And I think Diggo has said that, you know, it's a kid. He's a teenager. He's learning. He's going to make mistakes. He made mistakes, uh, you know, in, in certain issues, certain stories, uh, and he learned from them. Well, sometimes it took him a while to learn from them. But the other aspect of it is that it's the loner aspect that Diggo – uh, has done a lot in his stories. Here he is doing the right thing. And you know, how many times did you have the the people uh, against him, the bugle against him? Uh, he was alone by himself because nobody understood that he was doing the right things. Uh, so you had that loner individual that was isolated from society because he was doing the right things. And I think a lot of that came from Ditko. And you saw that a lot throughout his, uh, his run. At some point... Dan, you and I are going to talk in deep. We're going to dedicate a whole whole episode of this season to the the, the mystery of the Green Goblin and kind of its impact on Spider-Man uh, and comics in general. Um, but to kind of t- tie it in here also with about Steve Ditko, you know, Nick, one of the one of the most fascinating things for me in in when I was doing research for my book was kind of how this myth perpetuated itself that. Well, first of all, that Dicko, the, the, the source of the breakup between Dicko and Lee was the Green Goblin story, which, right. you know, but then also this this idea that Dicko never wanted it to be a somebody that he wanted that he wanted the character to be revealed as a nobody or something, you know, kind of similar to what he did with the crime master a few issues earlier. And, you know, I know Dicko has written a lot about this kind of like, where does this come from? You know, you've you you obviously have you know you've read a lot of the same essays, and you have your your own perspectives on this. Where did this come from? Why why where is this myth come from? Uh, <laughs> unfortunately, I think it's come from Stan Lee mostly because that storyline came out when he was probably asked many years ago uh, of a disagreement, and he either didn't recall, didn't want to bring up bad feelings, and he probably misremembered something uh, because I think. This is probably going back many uh, issues where he was thinking of another character where they did, when they were talking to each other and disagreed on something. He couldn't even go back as far as Electro because he, if you look at that story, at the end of that story, he was a nobody. Uh, and maybe that's something that uh, occurred at other times. But 
with the Green Goblin, since that story has been perpetuated, and Ditko has said from day one, and when, when he and he's shown, you know, that he came up with the, the idea not to have him as an O-body. Uh, I've also uncovered in one of my uh, blog posts uh, a fanzine uh, interview with John Romita from 1966 when he just came back, and in the interview it says. Uh, we had to make of Norman Osborn. He says the way Ditko uh, plotted the stories, we had no choice. Stan had no choice. So later on, Ramita forgot that, which is understandable. He was busy with other stuff. He didn't know the details. But he said that back in, when he was doing the first few issues. That says a lot. And if you look through the stories, and Ditko's pointed this out, that here's this character that's showing up little by little, you know, always in the background scenes. Then he starts speaking. Uh, uh, did, you know, uh, Lee gave him the name Norman Osborn. But no, he wanted him. That was a mystery. It was an ongoing mystery that he wanted would have resolved eventually if he had stood on. And even in those last issues, you see Norman Osborn as a sinister character. Uh, you know, I don't think that that was deliberate. You know, if he had stayed on, he might have resolved it himself. It would have been different, uh, obviously, from what Stan did. But he said definitely would have, you know, done that. The Crime Master story again, his, his contention is. Why would I want another uh, mystery villain? You know, this guy wasn't going to be. He was a. He was a thug. You know, he was a. He was a mob boss, but he co- covered his face. But it was no mystery. You know, he didn't. He didn't look at it that way. Why would I do it again? You know, yeah. so uh, it makes sense. It's one of my favorite stories too. The two-part crime master story, uh, as you mentioned in the earlier post, uh, the mobsters, the uh, film noir type storyline, uh, cops, robbers. Uh, it was really, really entertaining. You know. And you didn't have you didn't need the super menaces to uh, to make it interesting. And you know the other the other story I wanted to ask you about specifically, and and you know you you wrote a blog post about this one, and I mean I, I, it's it's an obvious choice if you're talking about the Ditko Lee run, but of course the the Master Planner trilogy, uh-huh. and, and specifically the final chapter. Now you know one of the things that you mentioned in your blog post about this was like you know this for all intents and purposes was kind of the the finale of Ditko's run, even if there were five more issues after this. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So, what, I mean, what, what, what do you think that, because it is, I mean, Dan and I have talked about this a few times during the course of the season. Like it, it, it's, it, you know, don't get us wrong. This is, this is a brilliant run of comics, but those last five issues just really do feel like, like just kind of a random tacked on thing. Um, so, you know, what's your sense of why, so much seemed to culminate there, and then there was more, then there was just kind of this little afterthought after you know afterwards. I mean, was was Dicko ready to hang it up after thirty three, or what's 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 your take on this? Mm, I don't know. That's a good question. I really don't know where what his thought processes were there. Uh, it did seem like it was the the, the uh, topper. I mean, you, it was really hard to beat. I mean, you, you really were on the top of your game. Uh, how do you top that? It is really hard. I don't know if he intended to uh, leave at that point or if he stood on for whatever reasons. Uh, I don't know. I really don't. And, and, but those those three issues, especially 33, just really uh, built up to a crescendo. And, uh, you know, there really wasn't – maybe he felt at that point that was, you know, as far as he could go with that. And, uh, you know, he did, you know, a few things here and there after that with with the character. But it was kind of hard to top, you know, really uh, – uh, it is one of those those stories that that really uh, you know hold up, and uh, you know I, I don't know how much uh, what is what his thought process there was uh, if he intended to stay long or if he thought about it later on I, I I don't know, but maybe some of the wind went out of the sails at that point and it was just 
you know, coasting a little bit at that point. I don't know. Whenever people talk about Steve Ditko and um, you know, his work, uh, objectivism always seems to be the word that's in the other hand, right? Like, there's no mentioning him without mentioning this one thing. And I'm curious, right. I'm curious um, why you feel that is. When we have uh, writers and artists like uh, Mark Millar and Frank Miller and Alan Moore who wear their um, – politics on their sleeves as much as Dicko, maybe even more than Dicko, especially in regards to Dicko's Spider-Man work, where I think you could probably not pick up on it if you didn't have a trained eye looking for it. Why do you mm-hmm. feel like Dicko has been so... It's almost as if he's been like tarred and feathered with this word objectivism, where people kind of use it as almost like an attack. Uh, why do you think that that's become such a kind of like a word that's so tied to him is it just like Mr. A and all this stuff? Or uh, I guess I'm curious about your opinion uh, well, on that. I just, uh, I don't know. I suspect part of the problem is that uh, he went in a different direction than most anybody else did in that period. I mean, he really was, you know, his, his thought processes and and his uh, storytelling and, and the uh, objectivism itself was not something that was very appealing to a lot of the fan base. Uh, and, you know, the fact that he did things his own way, did not, you know, uh, go along with, with the crowd, uh, bothered a lot of people. Uh, and I think that's uh, a part of the objection. And that he wasn't doing Spider-Man anymore. He wasn't going back and had no intention of going back to do what they loved, you know, the fans loved. And, and to him, you know, maybe he was intense with it at that point, but he moved on, you know, and he always, you know, he may have not felt that he couldn't go back and redo it again, you know, uh, there was so much, don't forget, if he took that character so seriously, you're going to go back after five years, ten years, with all these other storylines and plots and developments, a lot of which you probably would never have approved of, uh, would he really go back and want to do that again, you know, uh, I mean, that's what he heard over and over again, you know, people were not, you know, some fans were, but a lot of fans were not interested in, in uh, Mr. Ray, or not into, or didn't like it, didn't like the Charlton work he was doing, which some of it is really, really nice and incredibly uh, uh, work in the uh, late 60s, early 70s that I've written about. And uh, he invested a lot of work in the, in the war and stuff and a lot of his own creations and characters. And, you know, a lot of it was uh, overlooked. And uh, I think a part of it is the uh, un- unhappiness with, with him not returning to, to the same old stuff, to going back to Doctor Strange or Spider-Man. And the fact that, you know, how do you top yourself? You know, it's... In any uh, venue, it's hard. It's hard to go back and, you, you know, you're going to go back and do, you know, top yourself, do a better job. You're always going to be compared to what you did before. Uh, it's not easy. And I think he realized that, too. Do you think if he was a little more open with the fans or the public or anything? Yeah, I mean, you know, like, you know, we you, Dan was talking about objectivism being on one hand. I mean, I think the other statement you will that always gets tied to steve dicko is he's reclusive he you know he won't give interviews he doesn't make public appearances i mean does that kind of like create this this dark cloud if you will over him i mean you know obviously we're not fairly but but, because he does he does seem to engage with with people but it seems to be on his terms and do you think it's always yeah you know does that rub people 
Well, I think the perception is that he's because we read about this over and over and over again that he's this reclusive uh, person that will doesn't talk to anybody, doesn't communicate with anybody. He's uh, alone. He's bitter, and and you have all these other storylines that come out over and over again. People that don't even know about the guy, uh, you know. Again, he does it on his terms. Right? The man is not a celebrity. Doesn't want to be a celebrity. Doesn't want to be interviewed, uh, but. He does. He's a man of letters. He, he writes to people all the time. People have gone to see him. He's spoke to them. A lot of people I've talked to have, have communicated with him, met him. Uh, people that have met him at, at the uh, at, at, uh, not at conventions that have met him at, uh, at, uh, at Marvel or DC or when he was dropping off things. Pleasant guy that they could talk to. He had a lot of other experiences that are totally different uh, that he engaged with people. So I think it's this myth. That comes out uh, a lot of times for people that have no clue as to what he is, what he is like. Yes, he's a private person. He respects that he wants that privacy to be there, but he doesn't think it matters. You know, that's important to anybody else uh, in that respect. And then he hears all these other rumors and innuendos and other things that are completely untrue. So, I mean, it would upset any of us, you know. Somebody just comes and knocks on your door, which I've heard many times, and shows up in front of your house. Most people are not going to be happy about it, you know. <laughs> uh, and and they've done that to him many times, you know. Uh, so you know, we don't know what he experiences, but I get get a, a clue that you know some of that is really really uh, disruptive, uh, rude, and he comes from a, a time period where you know you didn't do those things, you know. And he was just an artist sitting around like anybody else doing their work. And he was not a uh, rock star or a celebrity. Now you have a, a an ongoing conversation with him going on. What's that? What's that like? How did that get started? I just decided to write a letter one day. You know, if, about ten years ago, and so on. I said, you know, I've never written to him. I'm I'm friends with this publisher, Robin Stein, a really great person, and uh, you know, I've written to him. We've talked about different things over the years. You know, he's a guy that that uh, Steve trusts very much, and uh, they have a great relationship together. And I just decided one day, let me write and just tell him, you know, how I appreciate his work and, you know, talk about general things about comics and stuff. And, you know, back and forth. We've had many letters back and forth. What goes with Ditko stays with Ditko. So I don't those things are not coming out. I sure. am not going to be like these people that come out and they here's my letter published. Uh, that's private stuff. And uh, I'm very pleased that he's, you know, that you can have a conversation right to him. And he's a very thoughtful and generous person in that regard. I think he's written to many people over the years, even people that have just asked for, for things that he's not going to give them, but he still replies to them. So, I mean, that says a lot about his character. I mean, people forget that he was one of the main uh, artists in the, the early 60s that contributed to fanzines prolifically. Most of the characters he gave away, the Mr. A stories and Avenging World, he basically gave to the fanzines to publish uh, for free. Uh, people stole from him. You know, there's artwork that was never returned. Uh, for being a nice guy. Uh, and he drew and he contributed to many, many uh, uh, fanzines and to people that were fan uh, uh, writers and artists that wanted advice, that they went up and spoke to him. So there's a, there's another uh, portrayal of him that I get that is not always out there. Uh, Nick, is there anything that you feel like is m- like most misunderstood or, or has gone unsaid about Steve Ditko? There's been a lot said about Ditko and his work. Uh, I just think he's, look, he's been in the business for about six decades. He's going to be 90 soon. He's still writing and drawing and creating ideas and concepts. And, 
you know, the fact that he's been in this business for, for so long, he's, he's done so much work in so many different genres, uh, uh, been so inventive over the years. He is one of my favorite uh, creative artists out there. Uh, you know, I liked his work when I was a kid, and I continue to learn more about it, learn more about the art, his work, uh, what he's done. And, I'm, you know, to be able to discover that and, and see something new uh, many times when I look for this stuff. Uh, that, that, I think that's a huge thing. And I think he's one of the, uh, you know, the great uh, creative talents in, in comic books, to be honest with you. Perfect. Well, Thanks. we want to thank you for coming on our show. Well, I appreciate that. It's been a really uh, exciting, interesting conversation. You guys, uh, you know, asked good questions, kept me on my toes. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, you know, you didn't, not the same old stuff, which is, you know, uh, like I said, I listened to your uh, last post and I could see you guys knew a lot about Spider-Man and about comics and Ditko. And uh, you don't always get that. So I really uh, appreciate that, that you delve into it. Well, thank you Excellent. for coming on. This means a lot that you would take some time out of your day to join us. Well, thanks again for Nick Caputo for joining us on the show. It was a blast to have him. But uh, next up, we've got Ron Friends. I'm always happy to introduce. And Ron, of course, is famous for his work on Amazing Spider-Man, starting with issue 252. His work on Spider-Girl, that uh, epically uh, long-running series. And uh, also for his famous uh, work on Thor... Uh, which you can all that you can find on Marvel Unlimited, and it's just a blast to read through and look at. So uh, let's uh, welcome Ron Friends back to the show. Well, now let's meet one of our amazing Spider Friends, the kind of guy that the other friends would recommend. Find out about the things they created. You'll love them so much that you wish you dated. But you're just friends. They're an amazing friend. A friend. A friend. A friend. They're an amazing friend. Uh, well, uh, welcome back, listeners. We are back to talk more about Steve Dicko, but this time we've got a little bit of a different uh, viewpoint to talk about, and that viewpoint is going to be provided by none other than our longtime friend of the show, Ron Friends. Welcome back to the show, Ron. Why, thank you very much, Dan. It's great to be here. Hi, Mark. How are you tonight? Oh, I'm fantastic. Thanks so much for coming along, Ron. We, we really oh, look forward to talking to you. Always my pleasure, guys. Thank you. Well, tonight we're going to be talking about Steve Ditko from, I guess, an artistic point of view. Um, Ron, when I first talked to you, let's just say a few years ago, um, <laughs> which actually kind of was, weirdly enough. Uh, although, say before. Yeah, yes. Just before. Before. That sounds good. Um, you know, you had uh, you know, mentioned Steve Ditko as a major influence on your work on Amazing Spider-Man. Um, for those who don't know, Ron worked, you know, starting with issue 252 alongside Tom DeFalco um, as the writer. And um, you had mentioned he was a big influence on your work. And I think it's pretty obvious to anybody that would, you know, read your, your comics, whether it's how you used your panels or uh, how you drew the characters. And I guess we wanted to have you on to kind of delve a little bit deeper into what you appreciate about Steve Ditko's work on the character. Okay. Uh, if you want an artist's point of view, we may have to find an artist, but uh, <laughs> as, as a journeyman illustrator, uh, I mean, I, Mr. Ditko, I would consider an artist. I, I, 
you know, because the art is in the in the viewing to to my to my mind a lot, and uh, there are things that he is able to to do and to get away with. It's it's certainly a very unique approach, uh, and a, 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 I, I would say venture to say uh, I've only met the man once, very briefly. I was at Marvel uh, visiting. I had, I think, I had just started Spider-Man, and I was, I had been, uh, I, I was good friends with, uh, am still, where we haven't spoken in decades, but I was friends with Joe Duffy, and she was Archie Goodwin's assistant on the uh, the Epic line, so I was hanging out in their office, uh, killing some time uh, at the Marvel offices, and Steve Ditko was doing a backup in the book, the coyote book and i don't remember was it called the gin or something like that does that i don't know you you comic experts does that ring a bell at all that does sound familiar uh i so don't quote me on what strip it was but he was doing a backup strip for coyote so he came into the the office and archie goodwin put great glee in saying you know Ron Friends, this is Steve Ditko. And I went, hello, sir. And I shook his hand, and, and he was very pleasant and, and very accommodating. But then Archie being Archie, uh, God love him, he says, uh, they're making him do you on Spider-Man. <laughs> and, and Mr. Ditko just turned to me and said, shame on them. <laughs> and I said, well, they're not making me, but, you know, and that blah, 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 you know, that kind of thing. And then he went on to discuss business with Archie and you know, said it was nice meeting you, and and uh, you know, it all lasted just a few minutes, and I was a little, uh, a little taken aback. And it wasn't until afterwards, I, th- I wasn't even aware of the mystique, because I I told people, oh, I I got to meet Steve Ditko. What's he look like? You know, and all this stuff. Does Does he look like Mr. A? You know, and all this jazz. And I, I had no idea of, uh, no real clue of of the mystique that had built up around. Uh, Mr. Ditko, and you know, I was uh, familiar with his work, uh, at Charlton, and and you know, the Creepers, one of those characters that just has always appealed to me, and uh, and of course on Spider-Man, and so you know, it, he he is truly unique in his approach and in his and and what of himself he puts into his work, in my in in my belief, but um, I, I would say. The, the thing that that I discovered by studying his work, by, by poring over his, his early run of Spider-Man, and uh, in, in anticipation of handling the character on a regular basis, is the deceptive simplicity and, and clarity of his storytelling. It is a master class in putting the information needed to move the story along in the panels as clearly as possible, which is, that's the job. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's pretty much it. You know, yeah, you have, you have to be able to draw things. <laughs> you have to be able to use reference when you need it and, and all of that and do it by a deadline. But, but the real job description is telling the story in pictures as clearly as possible. And, I don't. I'm not sure anybody ever did it as well as Steve Ditko. I and I even include Jack Kirby in that because he always picked the shot. 
he was never he never struck me as being more concerned with dazzling the reader um as he was with telling the story clearly and and uh you know he you know people have talked about how he 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 drew he didn't draw glamorous people you know he was the anti ramita and he didn't believe in glamour he believed in in showing people in all their humanity and frailty and uh you know he did less than beautiful women and less than handsome glamorous men but i you know i think that is one of the things that appealed to to, to Stan Lee when it came to Spider-Man. I think that's what he was going for, of course. Uh, I mean, the, the, the legend being that, you know, uh, he thought of, he thought about taking it to Jack, but, but Jack made him too heroic and, and it was too much of a, of a traditional view of a superhero. And that's not what Stan was looking for. So all of that is there, but I mean, it really is, you know, a, a situation where, like, the nine-panel grid that he's kind of known for is, is storytelling at its best. It's not trying to impress you with crazy panel layouts and all that. Some of that would come later in his other work and certainly in The Creeper and things like that. But but uh, on Spider-Man, he was interested in, you know, you getting involved in the characters. He was he was most interested in, in in telling the story about the characters and you relating to Peter Parker and relating to this cast of supporting characters that looked like people that you would meet and that you could be friends with, and uh, it was you know it, it was really just amazing looking at this at the work and and realizing that. The biggest mistake you could make of with storytelling is overthinking it. I mean, when I first broke in, I, I, I had been a fan for years, and uh, you know had, had taken in a lot of storytelling techniques by osmosis type of thing. But when I was first uh, drawing for Marvel, I was working. At my, in my parents' home, I was still I was still at home with them, and I would show the stuff to my mom. I mean, she was a civilian, you know, she was untrained in comic storytelling, and if she could tell me what was going on in general terms, you know, like oh, this guy is angry at something this guy said, and oh, now he's storming out and slamming the door, and uh, you know, oh, and there's Spider-Man, and he's swinging over the city. And it looks like he just saw something. And, you know, if she could tell me what was going on, then I knew I was doing my job because that's the job. Once I started studying, you know, a couple of years in, once I started looking at Ditko, it just was amazing how good he was at that, how, how, what, what a natural storyteller he is. Well, we always comment that's, that Amazing Fantasy 15 is only 11 pages to get across the whole origin of the character. You know, right. and it's remarkable yeah. how efficient it is. Well, I mean, it, it, it's been something in the in the last several years that, uh, you know, when there's filler needed, uh, we we just did that uh, a Spider Girl series that ran in Spider Island during the last Secret Wars thing, the overarching Secret Wars thing, and they they always contact Tom DeFalco if they, because there are writers who can't even conceive of doing a five page story or a 10 page story. 
uh, and getting anything done in it. You know, I, I, Tom DeFoco tells tells a story about talking to an editor where uh, the guy was hiring him. I, it was either a ten page story or a five page story, and the guy kept talking about, you know, and, and I, you know, I understand the problem, and he kept talking about the problem, and Tom was going. What, what hasn't he told me yet? What's the problem? And and he finally, you know, was able to get a word in edgewise, and he said, "Excuse me, what's the problem you keep referring to?" Well, the fact that it's only these many pages. And Tom said, "That's that's not a problem. That's the requirement." <laughs> well, can, do you think you can do it? I said, "Of course I can do it." You know, I mean, it it, it you know it has it is something. It's it's. One of the things that's been lost, I think, along with the craft, as comics have become an art form, I think it's one of the basic requirements of a craft that have been, uh, uh, in, in some ways, by some people, forgotten. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, you should be able to, whether it takes nine panels a page or, or not, I mean, you should be able to tell the story with a beginning, a middle, and an end in as many pages as you have to tell the story. Uh, and of course, coming off of the anthologies, they were doing that all the time. They were telling wonderful little O. Henry, Rod Serling type stories in five pages and eight pages and, and things like that. that. Was the standard of the time? So yeah, that doesn't surprise me at all. But the, it, it really is the you know the clarity. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people look at Ditko and and don't think he's flashy, and and they see the quirkiness of some of the figures, and they see the quirkiness of some of the expressions. But they they don't think he's he's complicated, uh, or he's you know, or maybe there are people that that study him voraciously and are reading a lot of things into it and all this. But the, but the clarity of the storytelling is very basic and very clean and very clear, and you can look at a page of of Ditko art and you can tell what the heck is going on, and the, you know. As I said, that's the job. So now, Ron, obviously, you know many artists ha- have been influenced by Dicko and and you know cite him as an inspiration. Yet, you know, at the same time as as you've kind of duly noted, um, he he definitely had his own style that has never truly been replicated. And, and you know, I, I was hoping you can kind of verbalize for us, first of all, what 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 made Dicko's art, specifically on Spider-Man, so distinct and just in terms of how, you know, the figures he drew and, and what kind of set it apart. But also, like, you know, I guess, what what does it mean that, it's really we, we we haven't really had that style since. I mean, is that more reflective on the the trends of the industry, or you know, do to are people looking for something flashier? Um, I mean, do you think Dicko doing Spider Man today would it work? You know what I mean? Like, would it would it be popular? I guess that's kind of where I'm going. I with have, that. I have a I have a tendency to think it does. I, I I think you know all of the all of the the, the greats. Um, uh, Mr. Kirby and uh, and and Mr. Eisner and and uh, and and Mr. Ditko, they they have the status of being unique. I mean, they they are a product of who they are. Their work 
is inseparable from who they were as a person and their upbringing and their backgrounds and everything that they bring to the table. That's what true artists do. You know, craftsmen are something different, journeymen are something different, but artists are bringing something, you know, very unique to themselves to the table. And, and I, I, I certainly would include, you know, Ditko in, in, in that definition. So it's, it's very hard. I mean, his, his point of view was so unique. Just like with Kirby, you can do the affectations. You know, you can, you can have art, you know, have his art in, in, in front of you and you can, you know, uh, do the gestures and you can, you can do the nine panel grid and you can, and it is the same way with Kirby. You can do a double page splash and you can, you can overwork the tech and you can, but it's, it's only the, the veneer. It's, it's only the glamor. I mean, I've never, uh, I've benefited from what I could learn as far as storytelling and dynamics from, from these incredible people. But, I, I I have no illusions that my work in any way has given me an insight into their genius, and and I know genius is a word that gets overused these days, but I honestly believe that when you're talking about the Eisners and the Kirby's and the Ditkos, we're talking about genius. We're talking about people who brought something completely unique. Uh, they were completely unique individuals who brought something completely unique to the the, the uh, medium they were working in. So, I I wish I could give you a more definitive answer, Mark. The 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 thing about the figures is again he he worked against. And one of the reasons I'm not sure it would work now, and one of the reasons why I you know there there are certain people that I I'm, I bet you like a Mike Allred cites Ditko as, as an influence. Would, would that be fair? Have you ever interviewed Mr. Allred? We have not, but okay. I think that's... I, I, I would venture to say yeah. he probably is somebody who would, you know, uh, without over-flattering him, would be considered almost like a modern-day Ditko. He has, a, he has a very unique approach. He tends to not entertain the tropes you know, he doesn't worry about the, the 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 glamour of the superhero figure as much, and and things like that, uh, and and that was something that Ditko brought to the fore. I mean, you know, and and because Kirby became such of the standard, you know, there there were gentlemen who were working in comics, doing crime stories and doing romance stories and all this, and when superheroes hit it big, uh, in that second wave with Marvel in the '60s, you know, they they came to Marvel, they Guys like Don Heck, let's say, fantastic illustrator, did crime stories and, and horror stories and things like that. And and when it came to doing superheroes, he was finding his way. And at Marvel, what did that mean? Look at Kirby. You know, either Jack was doing layouts for them or, you know, they, they were being asked to crib Kirby. And, and that's... That was the basis of a lot of people's superhero experience at the time, um, and and at Marvel, John Buscema cites that, Sal Buscema cites that, uh, you know, Heck talks about it. You know, I mean, that's the all the root of their superhero approach was always was always Jack Kirby, and you know, 
Ditko was kind of the anti Kirby. He was the you know what made I, I mean what makes the Spider Man figure unique, not just when he's swinging and being spidery, but when he's just standing there, the body's more relaxed. You know, the the hip is cocked, the one leg is the one knee is bent. There's, there's, you know, the, the, the hips are on an angle, the shoulders are on an angle. He, he stood like a person in, in a costume. And, and at the time, that's what Stan was looking for. That was the, you know, quote-unquote radical approach to superheroes that, that, they were, that he was looking for at the time. And even as Spider-Man's musculature developed, uh, it, was still the, it was still there. It was still the same thing, and it's still what made Spider-Man unique. When I did the, when I was lucky enough to do the Kid Who Collects Spider-Man, that's that's what it was about Ditko that I wanted to, to try to bring to the party, because it was Spider-Man standing in a room talking about his history with this young boy, and and I needed Spider-Man standing in that room to look like Spider-Man, and you know when push comes to shove. And believe me, nobody's a bigger Ramita fan than I am. But when push comes to shove, was you know, what makes Spider-Man Spider-Man standing next to say a Kurt Swan Superman is Ditko. And and I, like I said, no disrespect to any of the fine artists that have done Spider-Man over the years. Certainly not to Mr. Ramita, but that's just the thing. You know, that's kind of the thing. And. You know, when you talk about what an influence he was on me, he was, he was. I mean, I learned so much about storytelling from paying attention to Mr. Ditko, but it also was, you know, uniquely Spider-Man that he was an influence on. When I was awarded the Thor series, I, I studied Kirby out the wazoo, you know, to, to get familiar with what makes each of those characters uniquely themselves. And, uh, you know, so it was, it was Ditko for Spider-Man, Thor, it was Kirby, um, and so on and so forth. But, you know, with, with every character I've ever really been associated with for more than, you know, a moment, a passing moment. So, but if you asked me to, if I was going to do the vision, I would be looking at John Buscema. Mm. You know, you go back to the root of whatever the character happens to be. So, did I even come close to answering your question, Mark? Of course. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I love I, mean, I love the way you put that, Ron, about the stance because you know uh, it's hard. I think for like lay people like ourselves, maybe we're not lay people after two hundred episodes of Spider Man conversations. Um, but like I, as a non artist, it's hard to put the finger on what it is that makes a con- contribution so unique. Uh, so that's uh, why I loved hearing you say that about Dicko and how he positioned the character. Oh, absolutely. And, and Peter, you know, I mean, there is a, a, a thing, you know, I mean, and I was paying attention, as I said, to the veneer. I mean, one of the nicest things that's ever been said about me ever was, uh, well, Mark would not be aware of this because he doesn't collect the annuals. But that <laughs> annual that I did, the Amazing <laughs> Spider-Man annual I did, where Jonah Jameson got married was plotted by Tom DeFalco, but it was scripted by Stan Lee. And this was back before email and everything, and people being copied on emails, but Danny Finkeroth was nice enough to send me a letter that he got from Stan, a memo that he got from Stan. 
and and there was like a paragraph in there where you know it, it was it was talking about business and getting pages and when he would have the script complete and all this kind of stuff. And he said, and speaking of the pages, this Ron Friends guy is terrific, you know that kind of thing. And he was noticing that I was uh, studying Ditko, and he was and he was very flattering about the storytelling and. And he was very flattering about how I was laying out panels to lead the eye and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And it was, uh, it was wonderful. It was one of those, one of those moments. And I've had one or two in my career because I'm the luckiest guy you're ever going to meet. But it was one of those moments that makes you think like, you know, maybe I could have cut the mustard back in the day. You know, maybe I could have actually apprenticed with some of these guys and, and contributed, um, you know, to have, to have Stan, flatter me that way but uh it, it was definitely it was at that point it was early in my run on spider-man and i was still very very much paying attention to ditko in the positioning of the character and and the lay layout of the panels and and how people were carrying themselves how you know how a cop walked across the room and all this kind of stuff and 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 those are the the, the things that the uh, the affectations of of ditko that you can recreate, that you can, you know, that you can do the, you know, you can do the fingers, you know, you can do the Doctor Strange Spider-Man web shooting fingers. You can, you can, uh, you know, drop, drop people's earlobes like Ditko did. You could, you know, uh, have pants draped the way Ditko would draw them. And th- you can do the, you can do all of that. You can do the veneer and you can approximate uh, on some level, the, the the staging and the storytelling, but but what really made makes Ditko Ditko is the gentleman himself. I mean, is is whatever is going on in that incredible brain of his. The same with the same with with Mr. Kirby. I mean, you know, Mark Evanier. I, I enjoy reading his essays about Jack because you know he worked with the guy. He has no idea. I mean, the guy was just. Amazing, you know. I mean, ideas just came came out of him like Kirby dots. You know, I mean, that's that's just who these people are. They are unique creative forces that you know we're fortunate enough to 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 have here for however long they're they'll share it with us. Now, Ron, you're obviously fortunate to have worked with. writers co-creators that um you have had a very good working relationship with i'm of course thinking of the legendary tom defalco who you know anytime i've talked to him about something he makes sure to give you ample credit for for your contributions now you know obviously you know part of the the mythology if you will with stanley and steve ditko is and and obviously stanley jack kirby and you know a lot of the 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 early artists in in comic books period is this idea of you know artistic rights and creator rights and and ditko more than i think even kirby kind of put himself more forward in that regard in terms of getting more credit um i mean i think kirby later on pushed for it but ditko you know like when he was working on spider-man he pushed to get like a co-plotter credit um and I'm curious, you know, you young up and coming artists, why you know breaking in? I mean, did 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 Ditko's kind of actions in that regard did that pave a way for you at all? Or I mean, did, did, does that sure did that really come? Level in? it did. I, I'm sure on some level it did. Uh, mostly just on the level though that at Marvel, because of the way Stan worked, 
Uh, and because of the, the fact that he was working with guys who were master storytellers like Ditko and like Mr. Kirby, that that became known as the Marvel style. So by the time I got there, that was a a thing, you know. And it was a uh, it's a hugely collaborative effort. I mean, it depends on who the writer is and and who the personalities are as to how much credit you're going to get on the page. But, I mean, as a fan, I was very aware of the collaborative nature of of comics and how, you know, certain writers and artists really uh, seem to, to mesh and, and other teams not so much and, and, and things like that. So, you know, it was something that I was looking forward to and, uh, and, and have enjoyed with, you know, we was... I, I, Bruce Jones on Kesar, that was he was the writer. I would get his scripts. I would uh, they weren't uh, uh, full scripts. They were little short stories, and that's how they were structured. And I would sit down and I would and break them down. And in its own way, that was a, an amazing exercise in, in in me breaking a story down visually. Um, Joe Duffy and I collaborated a lot. We would talk about, you know, in the same way that Tom DeFalco and I made a very regular thing of, we would talk about the characters. And from those conversations, you know, we would make sure we were on the same page with who these characters were and, and uh, how they interacted. And, and, and so, there, you know, we would make sure that we had a consistent language, that we both knew what the other one was talking about uh, verbally and, and, and visually. So you know that kind of collaboration is, is is necessary. What having having worked together, somebody just asked me a question the other day. Oh, I was doing a, a, a an interview for a for a local uh, tabloid, and somebody was asking about ideas specifically that I contributed to my run on Thor, and genuinely, I don't remember. there are certain things i remember having been a fan turned pro there are certain moments i remember that specifically that were like the first time i contributed a story element or the first time i put in a liner note that got used by the writer or you know and and little uh, moments little minor epiphanies like that along the way but you know to to ask you know off like that there's like this one idea that you don't have time for that. I, you know, um, especially in my collaboration with Tom DeFalco, I mean, it's really hard to pull that thread and say who came up with what, because we might both have a legitimate claim that, you know, we both came at that idea and got there at the same time from different directions. Yeah, that's happened more than once. It's happened dozens and dozens of times, more too many to count. And so when I read, you know, these condemnations of Stan Lee because he was taking credit for other people's work and everything, it's it's just not that simple. It's just not. I mean, yes. And, and when you look at old memos, and and I was on one website and I I, I saw letters uh, that were written by. Uh, Oh, help me, gentlemen, Flo. Um, fabulous Flo Steinberg, was yeah, it? Yeah, that's it. Mm-hmm. Dan's secretary. There were these wonderful letters that you would write to fans, 
And in those letters, she would talk openly. And, and these were, you know, these were CC'd to Stan, and he would sign off on them. But they were talking openly with the fans about the fact that Jack told the stories and mailed the pages in and Stan scripted them. So this, this myth that Stan was out there, you know, taking credit for everything is just that. It's a myth. That it, 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 you know, I can't, I can't tell you how many times I've done interviews where I talk extensively about Tom DeFalco or Joe Duffy or whoever the writer is or whatever, and the article does not mention them at all. I mean, at my alma mater, they put up a, a display case one time that gave me credit for creating Star Wars. <laughs> because it, com- it, it comes down to, you know, the the terminology. You know, my latest creation is Star Wars. Boy, I wish. You know, <laughs> or my latest creation is Kesar the Savage. I didn't create Kesar the Savage. You know, so it, it, you know, I'm sure there was a lot of that going on. I mean, uh, when uh, just to name drop for a second, when Pat Olive and I shared studio space. We had both been burned time and time again by articles that would say, you know, series when they meant issue or say create when they meant pencil, you know, things like that. <laughs> and, and would misspell, you know, because you would refer to Kirby or Basema or something and they would butcher the spelling of Basema because they couldn't be bothered to look it up. You know, sometimes it was pre-Google, many times post-Google. And, and it it would just frustrate the crap out of us. And at one point we did an interview and I forget what it was all about, but we had done an interview and I was on the phone with the person who had done the interview and they were, um, double checking a couple of things and blah, blah, blah. And Pat and I had discussed it. So I asked, I said, listen, when you have the copy together, would you mind sending it to us so we could just proof it? And our only intention was to avoid those kinds of things that I just, you know, mentioned. And the the writer was so offended that the article never happened. Mm. And, you know, so that just goes on in this industry all the time. And I can't help but think that it was more that and less Stan trying to take credit. You know, there, there's a there's a, a famous re- a recorded interview with them that was done for the radio or something, and just because of the, the personality in the two gentlemen, Stan talked more than Jack did. Whose fault is that? You know, I mean, I do interviews with Tom DeFalco. At one point, I, I, we were doing a podcast interview at the same time, and he was barely talking at all. And I said, people are going to think I have you locked in my basement or something. <laughs> Do you? You know, I mean, it, it was make, it was starting to make me uncomfortable. Well, that's the thing, because Tom's response was, oh, you're going to let me out? <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. So it, it's, there, there is so much to uh, the collaboration between, you know, Craftsman A and Craftsman B that, you know, when, when people who are not in the know are so sure it I despair because I you can't tell them they're wrong but you know the 
I, I would never venture a guess about the relationship between Stanley and Jack Kirby. The one thing Tom DeFalco says is every time he saw them together, there was a genuine affection. He never saw them interact where he didn't feel there was genuine affection between the two gentlemen. Well, there's also a desire to kind of mythologize um, these stories, you know, like Stanley and Steve Ditko being kind of like uh, antagonistic towards each other. And I'm sure some right. of it is real, but you also want to create like a sexier story. So you pit these I'm, two I'm absolutely people against sure each other. Some of it is real. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm absolutely Dan. I'm absolutely sure some of it is real because when I met Stan Lee, to the, the you know he claims to not know absolutely for sure to this day why Steve just up and quit. Yeah, and 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 apparently Mr. Ditko's comment has always been Stan knows, <laughs> but apparently Stan doesn't <laughs> because, <laughs> because Mr. Lee said that to me when I was sitting across from him. He said, "I don't know what happened." Now he had no reason to like get into the weeds with me on this thing. I'm just a you know schmo from Pittsburgh, but you know he genuinely didn't seem to really know what the deal was. You know, Ron, it's perfectly so, clear you are the one who knows. <laughs> of everyone, I, say, I, and I was saying just the opposite. <laughs> You're uh, their secret so, keeper, I mean, but but there is really. You know, an amazing because it really does become a situation where, you know, it, it's it's almost impossible for people that weren't there. I mean, I, I it really bothers me from the stories you hear. It bothers me that Stan Lee, for a lot of people, is akin to the stories you hear about Bob Kane, who really was campaigning constantly to be the only person to get credit for Batman. You know. Yeah. Um, and and finally, Bill Finger has been recognized, and 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 the contributions of Jerry Robinson, and and, and so on and so forth. You know, but I, I don't think those are the same things. I just don't. I, I don't think there's there's a commonality between a Stanley and what went on all those years with his collaborators and and a Bob Kane. I I, I just don't. And maybe history will prove me incorrect. I don't know, but. Uh, having spent 35, 30 odd years, 35, 30 some odd years in this business collaborating with people, you know, and being very free with contributions and, and everything, I, you know, I, I'm gratified when an idea of mine is, you know, is taken to fruition and sees the page and, and, and gets out to the, to the fans and, and uh, and is appreciated certainly, and and uh, you know that's terrific. I mean, I, I the the alchemy of of this two dimensional storytelling medium is is all the after all these years is still so fascinating to me. It's incredible that you can take you know flat images and and you can put uh, word balloons over their heads. And you can throw some color on it, and you can put it on the page, and you can put a couple of staples in it, and you can send it out, and you can elicit an emotional response. Is amazing to me. It's magic, and it's you know, and when you can do that, when you can make somebody feel something about a two-dimensional image. 
it's incredibly gratifying. It is the 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 reward of of storytelling. You know, uh, uh, making somebody feel something that uh, that's incredible. Well, Ron, that's beautiful and all, but when you met Steve Ditko, did he look like Mister A? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it looked like the question. I don't remember what he looked like. <laughs> I have some pictures of him in my, you know, on my laptop and everything for inspiration. And I'm going to say that's what he looked like. But uh, you know, I wish I'd paid more attention. What can I tell you? He wasn't wearing a hat like Mr. A. You know that kind of thing. So uh, I, I don't know. I I do believe he was wearing a shirt and tie and a and a sport jacket though. Well, there you go. So, Real yeah, insight. Yeah, I mean. Well, <laughs> All those guys were, you know, they were real pros, though. You know, I mean, it was always, you know, Pat Olive, God love him, he would always sit there and look at pictures of, like, Bill Everett, you know, with with a shirt and tie or with his shirt open and, you know, where they would wear, you know, slacks and a work shirt over the board and all this kind of stuff. And and just, wow, those were, they were guys. They were, you know, that, that's, that looks professional, you know, that kind of thing. And, uh, I can't disagree. I mean, there's a, a romance to it that, uh, when you're lucky enough to be involved in this industry, there's, there's definitely a, a romance to be recognized in, uh, those who have come before who really, you know, blazed the trail. Well, Ron, I knew having you on would provide a ton of insight. And I think you totally delivered despite, the fact that you might not believe that. Oh, well, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. I, I don't even remember what I said. Um, I hope somebody was taking notes or recording it or something because I couldn't repeat it if you tried. All right. Well, so. it will live in this recording uh, forever. <laughs> so uh, you can listen back and see just how bright of a star you were at the time. Well, my goodness. I uh, I, I am humbled. And uh, that that's... The biggest thing is, you know, I honestly do feel like uh, like the luckiest guy in the world that, uh, you know, from the time I was seven or eight and you asked me what I wanted to do, it was to grow up and work for Marvel Comics and draw Spider-Man. And when I was 25, I was doing it. And how many people can say that? It's an amazing thing. And all these years later, uh, you know, I, I am a, I'm content you know, I have friends of mine who are struggling with aging and talking about, you know, are you happy and everything. And I said, happy is something you're at a birthday party. You're you're happy. You know, happy is something you're uh, you're on a roller coaster. You're happy or not. But if I know where my next check is coming from and I have some work to keep me busy and I know my rent's going to get paid, I am content. So, uh, and this industry has given me that. Thanks again for joining us for the ninth episode of our first season of the all-new Amazing Spider Talk. Dan, next episode, two weeks, November 15th. What's the title of that show? Yeah, we're actually going to get this one out in two weeks. Sorry for the delay uh, this week. Our next show is going to be called Spider-Man's Origins Remixed. Remix. <laughs> yeah, we're going to be talking about the many different times that Spider-Man's origins have been redone and altered, whether it's straight up rebooting the whole thing, 
uh, adding in additional wrinkles to his remix that weren't previously there. We're going to be taking a look at it all starting in two weeks. Yeah, kids, that means chapter one's on the horizon. (laughs) (laughs) All right, I'm looking forward to it. Everybody is looking forward to chapter one, Dan. Are, Are they? Uh, maybe. Also, for our Patreon subscribers, be sure to check out our Patreon page and your podcast feed for this week's bonus episodes. Uh, last week, Dan and I reviewed Amazing Spider-Man 789, the beginning of Marvel's, Le- Marvel's legacy run on Amazing Spider-Man. Uh, this time around, we're going to be getting to an episode about Amazing Spider-Man number 790 as Spidey battles the Human Torch again over the mix-up of the Baxter building. Uh, And we also have a double bonus uh, episode, an interview uh, with our good friend Ron Friends about uh, his Facebook and social media presence, which was a a lot of fun, Dan. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Mark, how would one become a part of this club? I'm glad you asked, Dan. For just $3.99 a month, the price of a new comic, you'll get access to our exclusive new issue reviews, Swarm B-Book, mailbags, more than that. Just uh, all during the off weeks in between these great grand episodes of all new Amazing Spider Talk. And Dan, if someone wants to be super generous and go for either $10 or more a month, you'll be sent exclusive commissioned artwork in the mail every six months. Dan, what's a better deal than that? There is no better deal than that. So go check out our Patreon page over on patreon.com slash amazing spider talk or go to either of our websites and click on the banner that reads friendly neighborhood spider talk members club to become part of the fun. Mark, speaking of fun, there's no more fun place on the internet other than Ron Friends' social media accounts than your social media accounts. Where might we find them? Yeah, well, of course, you can find me on Twitter at ChasingASMblog, uh, and uh, you can find my website, ChasingAmazingBlog.com. You can find me on SuperiorSpiderTalk.com. You can order and or hopefully both read my book, 100 Things Spider-Man Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die from Triumph Books. And uh, Dan, you know, those of you who want to track me on the New York City Marathon app, I will be running in that uh, this Sunday, uh, November 5th, the first time in my life. Dan, I'm a little worried. I'm nervous. (laughs) You should be. Marathons are terrifying. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, you know, you can download that app and and punch in my name. If you spell it right, I'll come up and you'll know when I finish or if I finish. (laughs) That's awesome, Mark. I'm going to have to do that. Uh, can, Can we live taunt you while you're doing it? Uh, you, I don't know if you can taunt me. Uh, I mean, unless you're in New York and you want to be on the route and just like at one point, like at mile like 11, have a sign that it's just like run like your life continu- counts on it, Mark, and that annuals count or something like that. <laughs> I like this. I like this. I hope people do this. Uh, awesome, Mark. Uh, if I could fly out there, you know I would be at the finish line there to make fun of you. I could just see you like at mile five being like, in this annual, (laughs) 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 mile 20, this is mile 21. This is the Peter and MJ marriage annual. (laughs) Do I just hold up the the same sign when it's annuals that are just repeated content? 
There you go. <laughs> Please, anyway. someone do this. Take your weekend and do this to mock Mark. All right, there we go. Uh, I will take a photo with you if you do it. I will. I will. I will sacrifice potential seconds off my time to take a photo with you uh dan where can we find you on social media <laughs> well when i'm not making fun of you you can find me over uh at at sup spider talk on twitter or on superior spider talk.com uh as we go through all of our changes to the site some of you may have seen that i put a long letter up a very long letter up about some of the changes that are going to be going on with that site. So I, I, I'm excited to see how you all respond to that and, um, and what's going to happen with our site going forward. I think good things. But, uh, yeah, go check that out over at superiorspidertalk.com. Now, Mark, this has been a long yes. show. And so, you know, we may have forgotten some of the very things that happened at the beginning of the show. But there's one thing that we never forget, Mark. Yes, and that thing is, with great podcasts must also come the all-new Amazing Spider Talk. 